Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Uh, commentators note that it's probably most likely, if you look at the geography of the area, the Sermon on the Hill, but that is not as cool sounding as Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew is kind of inexplicably, unapologetically portraying Jesus here as the new, truer, and better Moses. So it makes sense that Matthew would portray Jesus on a mount, though he's probably not on the top of Mount Everest and the people following him were at the bottom, because he is in a sense bringing a new law, a new teaching, or interpreting the old teachings of Scripture in an accurate way to teach God's will to these people. And you'll notice, if you read through the whole chapter, that there are kind of two groups of people in the crowd. There are the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and all the kind of like presuppositions and beliefs that they have. And then there are the followers of Jesus and then a few people probably trickling in. And you can imagine, just like any time Jesus taught, with a big crowd around him, uh, he would have been doing normal stuff, eating, hanging out. And then all of a sudden, you can imagine Jesus kind of like saying, all right, I'm going to talk now. And then the crowd just kind of like hushing, you know. And you know there's probably some guy in the back like who's still carrying on with the old conversation and people are like, shush, man, just shush, he's about to talk. And then like somebody doesn't listen and they go, shut up. And then they finally get to the place where everyone's quiet and then Jesus is answering the questions of the crowd and uh, speaking truth into these people's lives. If Jesus is a king like Matthew portrays him and all the followers are asking therefore that question, what is his kingdom like and what does it take to be in this kingdom? You can imagine some people, the religious leaders, skeptical, wondering what is this supposed kingdom that's going to be so great, what's it going to be like? And you can imagine some hopeful, excited people who might very well, if you're going to put a term to it, be poor in spirit, would be excited to say, what is this new king going to do for us? What is this king going to bring? And if I'm associated with that king and I'm in his kingdom, what amazing things might that do in my life or even in the world? And it's in that setting with that big kind of question looming in the crowd with all the different people there that he begins to teach. And he says these uh, nine different blessings, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, meek. And you'll notice that we get to a passage of scripture that has been common in the, in the zeitgeist, in the world of the day, we recognize potentially this passage. Or at least there is an old kind of group and a, a shrinking group and a new group. What I mean to say is there's an old group that might say this. I'm not sure if I can believe in the modern world in what Christianity really teaches. I'm not sure if I can get on board with God and the miracles and that sort of thing, but I love these moral teachings from Jesus. And there might be a newer group, or maybe you're here this morning and you've never even really heard the Sermon on the Mount before. You would be a newer and faster growing group of people, specifically in America. Some of this was illustrated in, in a book written by Virginia Stem Owens. She is an English professor, and she was working with students, as she typically does every semester, teaching her literature class at a state college. And she works on famous literature, and eventually in the course of the semester, she always gets to the Sermon on the Mount, and students have to write an essay on it. In recent years, she noticed that many of them had never heard of the Sermon on the Mount and had specifically never read it. And then when they finally digested all that Jesus says in these three chapters of the Bible, the students 
hated the Sermon on the Mount. Here's two quotes from the students. They uh, said, I did not like the Sermon on the Mount. It made me feel like I had to be perfect and no one is. Another quote says, the things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman like that is adultery. To be angry at someone like that is murder. These are the most stupid and inhuman statements I've ever heard. Virginia Stem Owens, being a Christian author herself, noticed and expected this cultural shift in the public college world of the day. And here's what she said. She said, Finally, people are biblically illiterate enough that they are able to respond to Jesus without filtering him through 2,000 years of cultural haze. In other words, honest, ignorant ears can finally hear the Sermon on the Mount as it actually is, and they hate it. They're terrified by it and disgusted by it. You know, I said earlier in this series that as we go through Matthew, my hope is that we set aside our presuppositions about Jesus and just walk through the book together and say, what is new here? What do I need to take into my life? What can I take a new look at in terms of the life and the teachings of Jesus and the accounts of his life? Here, we're, we're in a world, the post-Christian world, the post-modern world, where people don't live with a biblical worldview, and so they don't have exposure to this. But the benefit that Virginia Stem Owens is saying is that people can come to Jesus' teaching now fresh without the presuppositions of, I like, I, I don't like Jesus. I can't follow him. I can't take in what the Bible says about Jesus, but I like the religious part of it. I like the moral part of it. But that's kind of like out the door. And now we live in a culture, praise God, I guess, that people are so biblically illiterate that they can actually see Jesus as he portrayed himself to the original hearers of his words. And they're crushed by it. These standards are high. And their reading of scripture causes them to be terrified and disgusted. Well, some of that, as you might suppose, is out of a, a misreading of Scripture. And I think we really have to ask the question, okay, what are the Beatitudes? What is Jesus really trying to say here before we can march forward and do some application or before we can really talk about how this is going to change our life? We really have to understand this properly. And so with your Bible or even up on the screen here, let's dig in. You'll notice in verse 3 that Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that is also repeated in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew bookends these blessings uh, like he does a lot in the book. And it shows Jesus saying, these are the people who are in the kingdom, and these are the people in the kingdom. But all the other blessings in the middle of of this beatitude section are in future tense. These people will be comforted. These people will inherit the earth. So what that tells us is if you take all the Beatitudes as a whole, it would be a misreading of Jesus' words to say these are eight boxes that if you can check them off, you will be loved and approved and honored by God. It would be a misreading of the text to say if you can be meek, if you can be merciful, if you can be peacemaking, then you might be able to earn God's favor and go to heaven. Because everyone in this group, in the Beatitudes, is entering into the kingdom of heaven. In another way to say it would be, this isn't eight pe- groups of people who can earn God's favor. It's one type of person who is in the kingdom of heaven. So the future things are like promises about what it looks like to become a Christian. But really, this is a person who, if influenced by God, and if imbued with his righteousness can have these traits in their life 
This is one type of person who knows Jesus. And if you look at the passage, you'll see the first four are really like a four-step process. The first four Beatitudes are how you can be sure that you are in the kingdom. And the last four Beatitudes are descriptions of the joyful life of a Christian. The surpassing worth and life-changing power that God brings to us as Christians. The first four Beatitudes, how you know you're a Christian, how you know you're with Jesus. The second four Beatitudes, what it's like to be changed and live as a growing Christian. So let's jump to it. How to be sure you've entered into the kingdom of heaven, verses 3 through 6. And as I mentioned, they are steps 1 through 4. Look at verse 3. Poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This isn't a passage about the poor, although there are a number of other biblical passages about mercy and justice and care for the poor. This passage is talking about being poor in spirit. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, in a sense, it means to be spiritually bankrupt, to be out of money, out of resources, out of goods, on a spiritual level, to come before God and say, I am out. I can't invest my way out of this. I can't work my way out of this. I don't have a dollar to turn into two dollars. I am spiritually bankrupt. Some people, um, I think it's common for us to say things like, well, one day I'll answer to God and I'll tell him that I've done some good things and I've done some bad things. And I like to think that I've done mostly good things and I've done more good things than bad things. And on that account, on that basis, God, will you accept me? That's like a plan I think some of us have for our future that will become, uh, that will come before a holy, perfect God with a standard of justice that is perfect because he's a perfectly just and loving God. And we'll say, I did mostly good, mostly bad, and I'm better than most of the population. God, will you accept me? But that is not what it means to be poor in spirit. Um, For four different years of my life, I did a Bible study and ran a ministry to people who were in recovery. And every Thursday afternoon, I had a one o'clock appointment at a recovery home, uh, a rehab facility for men. And it it was a ranch where men would work during the day and then have recovery meetings and uh, 12-step meetings throughout the evenings. And it was a great experience for my life. I, I got guilted into it. Anybody else ever get guilted into anything at church? I got guilted in, no? Okay, great. So I got guilted into it. Somebody said, all oh, these men, you know, they need some help or whatever. And I was like, I, I don't think I'd be a good mentor for them. And it was a fantastic experience. It was a real God-ordained experience for me. The one thing that was most powerful about teaching Bible study on a weekly basis to people who were in 12-step, who were in recovery, who were hitting rock bottom, or at least we pray, they were hitting rock bottom at that moment in their life, detoxing from the drugs that they had done right before they got into rehab, uh, in places where they were sifting through abuse and trauma and, and abandonment and the things that go on in your head when you've been doing drugs, hard drugs for, for years, like a mixed bag of different experiences of different mental capacities even in this Bible study. The one thing that was unique and common among most all of the men in that Bible study is that I didn't have to work hard to convince them that they were deeply flawed and they needed a savior. It was a Bible study of screw-ups, ne'er-do-wells, people who had shunned and pushed out all of their family members and were on their last resort. But all of these men for the most part, were poor in spirit. 
And when somebody would step into the Bible study and say, well, I don't know if I need God, but I would like a tune-up or I would like some empowerment or maybe I'd like a little bit of peace because I need some help to kind of make better choices, the rest of the men would, would always get on him and say, bro, your problems are so much deeper than just God being your therapist or God being your self-help guru. Your sin runs deep. Don't fake it. You can't pretend. Everyone in that Bible study would, I don't know, I don't know if it was always graceful, but they would turn on you. If you started positioning yourself above anyone else morally, that group would turn on you quick because the majority of those men, poor in spirit, morally, spiritually bankrupt, and in need of God. Part of those 12 steps, uh, 12 steps, I'm not sure if you've ever had experience with them. I know some in our congregation do, would say that we have to admit we are powerless over our addictions, and that our lives have become unmanageable. Another step reads, we make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves, and we admit to God and ourselves and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. We have to be poor in spirit to take the first step to enter into the kingdom of God. And the next step is like it. We have to mourn in spirit, in a sense. Verse 4 says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And there's an element, element to the Bible that does promise love and care for those who are hurting. Like, don't get it twisted. I'm not just talking about steps to the kingdom of God. There are other biblical passages, and Jesus is pulling from those themes to say, God has a plan to help people who mourn, people who cry, people who um, wiped away the tears of their, from their week in the parking lot downstairs and then put some glasses on to try and cover up the fact that their eyes are red and just rolled into church today. Like the mourning, the hurting. I'm reminded of Psalm 56 when it says, God, you keep track of my sorrows. You've collected all my tears in a bottle. You've recorded each one in your book. I'm also reminded in the, in the return of Jesus in Revelation 21 when it says, one of my favorite passages of the Bible, look, it's picturing God's return, Jesus' return. God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. He, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That's a picture of Jesus' return. What I mean to say is if you're crying, if you're hurting inside, or you're just trying to muster up the courage to be able to like be in public because you're hurting so bad, see that Jesus counts your tears in a bottle and that in the return of Jesus, we have a future hope that those who mourn will be comforted. That is the future we have in Christ. And apart from that theme that Jesus is accessing, he now turns that to us to say, if you're poor in spirit, then it will cause you to mourn. And in a sense, mourn in spirit, in a spiritual way to say, I'm out, I'm morally bankrupt, and my problem is not external, my problem is sin. And a lot of us, I, I think we spend a lot of our lives um, making, I don't, know what, I don't wanna call it excuses, but we spend a lot of time complaining about the fact that our problems in our life are external. Like, my life would make sense, I would be more kind to my wife if my job weren't so hard. Or I would be a more present uh, friend or father if I just had more money and I didn't have to work and worry so much. 
or we would go to a therapist to try and talk ourselves out of the fact that our primary problem is sin as long as we have enough self-awareness about our emotions or whatever, therapy, good thing, but to the extent that it talks us out of our personal sin, not helpful, that doesn't cause us to mourn. If we're poor in spirit, we have to take the next step to say, my problem is not external, my problem is indwelling sin nature. It's not that I have a tough job. That may be true. That may influence your life and your emotions and how your mind works. But your problem is that you have anger. And that anger might be rooted in entitlement. It might be rooted in pride. It might be rooted in, on some level, believing that the people around you ought to serve your particular agenda or your emotional uh, uh, nature. Whatever it is, our problem is internal and it's sin. There are some folks, God bless them, that are so like able to keep their life together that when you meet them at church or you meet them in life, they just seem to be obedient. They just seem to be people who have their act together. And I don't know if that's actually true of anyone, but I know that there are some folks who when I say your, nature, your problem is sin and it is in you and it's deep and you ought to be poor in spirit before God, there might be some folks who kind of go, I can imagine that probably is a problem if people are addicts or people are gossips, but I'm not sure how deep my sin runs. And I think for those of you who are just sharp, like you're just better than some of the rest of us, then you could fall for that lie. But think about this. For those of you who do seem like straight-A students in the kingdom of God, or people who are just aware and mature and generally kind to people, don't you find that your chief sin is that you claim to own your own life? For People who don't have any glaring sins in their life, my observation is that the chief sin among those people is that because I've been pretty good, because I'm more functional and more helpful and maybe even more giving than the average population, that my life is my own and I don't spend a lot of time falling before God to say, I need you as my Lord. I want you to be my king, my personal savior. See, some of us who are just high-functioning and good people, we're not poor in spirit, but we do make the primary sin, we still fall for the primary sinful function in our lives, which is to be our own Lord and our own Savior. So I'm not trying to convince you that you're bad. I'm not trying to do the boot camp sermon where I just say, you're scum and you're the worst and you ought to fall before Jesus. What I'm trying to say is, let's be true, that even the best of us have this primary function, we want to be our own Lord and our own Savior. And sometimes our good Christian deeds feed that sin. Because you think, I'm doing more than most Christians. I serve in the kids' ministry, then I serve in the youth ministry, then I serve in the worship ministry, or whatever it is. But it's still feeding that sin, even though the deeds themselves can be very Christian, can be very obedient. Uh, and I told you earlier that there are two groups of people in this crowd. One is a religious crowd, a, a crowd that is like I'm talking about, seeking to find their righteousness and their own deeds. And there's another crowd uh, that is desperate for God, people who are seeking Jesus and, and following him. And I think of it like two different keys. Basically, there's two different religious ways to live your life. And they exist in the crowd that Jesus is speaking to. And I mention this because we have to pay attention to that reality for the rest of these three chapters. Everything Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is meant to be spoken to the followers, but overheard by the Pharisees. 
Have you ever been at a coffee shop where you notice someone talking about something that makes them look really cool, and they just tend to say it a little bit louder? You know, they go, oh, I mean, an Emmy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, who would have thought? It's, like, you, you sit at a coffee shop, and you hear people talking about their, their uh, vacation in Aspen or something like that, and it's just, the volume's just a little bit loud so that everyone else in the coffee shop can go, la-di-da. And Jesus is doing that. He's saying, blessed are the meek followers. <clears throat> and he's speaking to the religious leaders who would say, sure, I can be meek. I can do whatever religious thing you ask me to do because I'm good at performing at these tasks. We have to be meek before God. A lot of Christians really struggle in their faith because they stop at step three. A lot of Christians have seasons of dryness and frustration in their faith because they don't see God really changing them and working in their lives. Their, their worship is rote. Uh, their attendance at church is obligatory. The service they do for other people is potentially out of guilt because oftentimes we do this. We step, step one, I'm poor in spirit. I'm willing to admit that. Uh, I'm willing to mourn the depth of my sin and the, the fact that it hurts God's heart. And I'm willing to be meek before God. But then we fill once we're meek, we fill our lives with Christian deeds to say, I think I can do it. I think I can earn it. And if I achieve enough, then I'll finally feel like God has accepted me. But Jesus addresses any kind of Christian, any kind of religious person who's trying to say, if, if I'm good here, God will answer my prayer here because I'll be able to bend his arm and put him on the agenda that I'm worried about or that I'm fearful about or that I, a, an area of my life that I need help. Jesus now has a fourth beatitude for any kind of person who still feels anxious and worried about where they stand with God, though they are a Christian and on paper they would say, I follow Jesus, I have faith in Jesus and I'm forgiven of my sin. For any Christian who's saying, yeah, but I'm still not sure if he loves me. Jesus has a fourth beatitude for you that says what you need is to thirst for and hunger for a righteousness that you could never earn. Verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Uh, Philippians three is a great passage talking about righteousness that's given outside of yourself because that's what we're talking about. It's not a righteousness of your own. It's something that is a gift from God. Uh, Philippians three says, Paul writes, I consider basically all of the great stuff in my life to be garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Jesus' righteousness is not something attained. It's not something earned. It's something that is imputed, which is a kind of a fancy theological term. And um, it's, it's shoved um, I'm, I'm thinking of John 6 where Jesus says, no one comes to me except for those that the Father draws. And he's using net imagery just like we saw in uh, Ma uh, Matthew chapter 3 where we're drawing fish out of a lake and God the Father draws sinful hearts who would otherwise just be wandering around like little fish just kind of going, where can I get my next food? And uh, just r swimming around the lake. And then the Father is grabbing a group of people and then bringing them into a new kingdom and the Father draws them to Jesus. Another way to say this would be, if you ever made a choice to love Jesus, if, you're ever, if your heart ever turned from sin and then turned to saying, I'm going to delight and find my joy in you, Jesus, that's because the Father drew you 
and pulled you against your sinful nature with the power of his spirit into righteousness. It's not you pick Jesus if you're righteous enough. And if you keep picking Jesus by earning your righteousness, then you'll be a mature Christian. It's that from the start, you were sinful. And God drew your heart over to Jesus. You responded in faith. And that's how it works to grow as a Christian as well. Before we can talk about the way the kingdom of God changes us, we have to hunger and thirst for a righteousness that cannot be found on our own. What I mean to say is, if you're hungry and thirsty, you don't start putting a plan together to grow a garden and to channel some water into the front yard of your house and then have water. If you're hungry and thirsty and you're out of food and you're out of water, you need to ask for someone to give you food, someone to give you something that you can drink. If you're out, if you're bankrupt, if you have a problem and that problem is deep, you can't start hatching plans and saying, I'm going to clean my life up and I'm going to get this going and eventually I'll earn it and eventually I'll start kind of like tiptoeing my way to greater righteousness and then I'll be full and then I won't be thirsty anymore. When you're poor in spirit, then you hunger and thirst for righteousness and you say, God, will you fill me? Will you, in your love and grace, give me something that can make me whole again? That's what it looks like to be into the kingdom of God. I talked about um, the two different crowds because it's as if those two crowds have two, kingdom, uh, two keys to get into the kingdom. And both keys look like they'll fit. The, the Pharisees and their religious observance and their entitlement to having God's favor because of being so good, uh, it's as if they had the key and they stuck it in the lock to the kingdom of God and it just wouldn't twist. And if you've ever had like, I used to drive a 2000 uh, Dodge van. It was, it was a 2000 Dodge van. It looked like it was made in like the 70s. I, somehow they, they, those vans just looked the same for like the last few decades before I bought it. But it, by the time I got it, it was just beat up and gross. And I think the key that I had to the van was like a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. And so in order to get the key to work, all the things you had to do. You know, and it was just the ignition, but then I had a different key. Though it should have been the same key. I had a different key for the back door. And then eventually that key broke off in the lock. So sorry guys, can't use the back door. And then eventually something broke. Oh, the handle just broke off of the side door. So it was a 12-passenger van. I used to drive around and haul kids around from church and that kind of stuff. But you could only get into the van or out of the van from the front door. <laughs> so it was like four rows of seats. And you had to like hop over the rows of seats. And then all of a sudden we pull up to like in and out to get some hamburgers. And then everyone has to just do this to get out or whatever. Anyways, it had a bunch of keys and none of them fit right. And eventually they all broke and snapped off and that sort of thing. But the ignition had like... The, the, I had the touch, like only I was able to make this thing work. And the, the key was so old, it would slide in, you'd bump it back, tilt it to the right, wiggle the, <laughs> wiggle the steering wheel, and then go, and then if I did that for about 30 minutes, it would start every time. Okay, and that's how the Pharisees view their righteousness. They see, here is my key to the kingdom, and I know it's going to work. And they shove it in. And they go, this looks like it'll fit. And they put it in, and they angle it up, and they put it back, and whatever little things that they're trying to do to manipulate the kingdom of God and say, if I obey right, and if I never cuss when I stub my toe, and if I'm given up or whatever it is, then I can finally get this key to turn. All the while, Christians are hearing this that are poor in spirit and are saying, if you're giving me the key, 
then I'm going to put it in as soon as I get it and I'm into the kingdom. And if that's true, that's good news. That's how gospel people live. It's not about how you can manipulate your way into the kingdom of God because it's a free gift. And when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, when we mourn the depth of our sin, all of these things we go through, four steps, we have the keys to the kingdom. It fits right in. We open it and we are with Jesus for all of eternity. That is good news for all of us who do all four steps to get into the kingdom. Second half. Halftime break for this sermon. Uh, like any good hike, you get up to the top of the mountain, you got to pause for a second just to like enjoy the view. What we just talked about is a great way, if you're here and you're not sure where you stand with God, to become a Christian today. Like you might have been striving, you might have been worried about whether God has forgiven you or loves you or wants you in his life for all of eternity. And if you're here and you're not sure where you stand with God, those four steps, and if they apply to you, if you're saying, yes, 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 then that's what it means to enter into that kingdom. My prayer for you is that there's a, a submission, there's an excitement, there's a joy as you say, yes, I want to be a Christian. Now, the real joy of the Christian life is that the next four Beatitudes apply to us. They change us. They make us into new kinds of people. This is a good illustration of it. In Genesis, um, there are 12 brothers. One of those brothers is Joseph, and Joseph is the father's favorite. And the brothers are mad at him for being the favorite, and so they sell him into slavery. Some of you have heard this story before. Uh, when they sell Joseph into slavery, he's basically dead. I mean, he's a goner. You sell someone into slavery from prominence, and then he goes into some foreign land, in this case into Egypt, he's basically dead, sent to his death. So he's sold there, but because of God's saving work in Genesis 45 and in a few chapters earlier, and because of Joseph's righteousness, his good deeds in, the, in Egypt, he is saved and he's eventually risen to prominence, second to the Pharaoh in leading this country. Uh, one day, the brothers... Uh, come to Egypt because there's a famine in the land and they need to buy grain from Egypt. And Joseph, as the number two to the Pharaoh and, is in, and given the reins over the kingdom, he's in a kingly role in a sense. He sees his brothers roll into Egypt and is immediately moved. I mean, can you imagine that sight? Your brothers hated you. They abandoned you. They sent you to your death. And now they come into the palace. They come into your kingdom asking for grain. So Joseph sees his brothers and weeps. He says this, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified in his presence. And that's right. Because he's functionally the king. And his sword could drop down at any moment and kill these men. He, it would be within his right in Egypt. And so the men, terrified because of his stature, couldn't even answer him. It says, then Joseph said to his brothers, uh, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold to Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry 
with yourselves for selling me here. Pay attention to this part in, in Genesis. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been a famine on the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve your life on earth and to save the lives of a great many. He made my father, he made me uh, father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live now in my kingdom. The brothers go to Joseph and they're terrified because they've abandoned him. Their sin has sent him to death, and yet he rose from the dead, in a sense. And he became king. And he now lives in his kingdom. All of us have to do what Joseph's brothers did. We realize that our sin is not just something that we do to ourselves. It's not just something we do to our loved ones. But when we sin because God is perfect and has a perfect plan for your life, then we sin against God. And then we go to God and we say, we've sinned against you. We, we sold you out. We abandoned you in your time of need. Because of my sin, you went to the cross and had to pay for that sin to, to, for me to do something with my life. Now we fall before the sword. But Joseph's brothers, instead of getting the sword, he wept on their shoulder. And he said, now go tell the Father and come and live in my kingdom. It's only until we bow down before Jesus and instead of receiving the sword, instead of receiving payment, we receive a loving Savior who says, now come, that we can live as Christians. And it's only by being empowered and changed at that reality that when we live in the kingdom, and what I'm trying to say is, to the extent that you live in the kingdom and know you're living in the kingdom because of what the Savior has done for you, because of what the King has done for you in accepting you to himself, that we can live differently in our lives. And that's where the rest of the Beatitudes come from. We'll move through them relatively quickly. I don't know that we have time to dig into every exact detail about what it means to be merciful and peaceful. The general point in these last four is to say these things will be true of your life to the extent that you live with the hero king that is Jesus. Look at verse 7. He is merciful. Because he's merciful to us, we are merciful to other people. There's two types of mercy in the Bible that apply to Christians specifically. One is forgiveness. Um, when you forgive someone, you eliminate a debt. And without going into too much detail, I don't want to bombard you with details about, um, about the nature of forgiveness. But you know it's true that when someone hurts you, there is a weight put on you. There is a debt that is extended. When someone hurts you and disappoints you, does not meet your expectations, there is a debt that needs to be paid. And when you forgive that person, it's not just that you ignore the debt and leave it there, because that would be like a level of denial that still makes you resentful about the wrong that someone has done to you. Something has to absolve or pay for that debt. And so you know, you know intuitively, that when you forgive someone who has hurt you, and especially when it's a big hurt, that you are deciding when you forgive to absorb that debt. If someone borrows your car and breaks it, when you forgive them, the car doesn't come back. You have to absolve that debt through forgiveness. When we live as Christians, we realize that Jesus' death on the cross paid for a debt that I racked up with my sin to God the Father. And so because he paid for that debt, the, the, the debt is gone. 
And now I can just go to God in prayer and I can know that I'm accepted to God when I come to him because that debt has been paid. And I suspect one day when we get to heaven and we talk to God, the answer is not going to be, look at all the great things I did. You're going to get to heaven and you say, look what he did on my behalf. The debt is paid. That's why I'm acceptable. That's why I can be in heaven. That's why I can be favored by God, loved by God. That's why I can be blessed, 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 blessed. Not because of the moral record that I have, but look what he did on my behalf. The debt is paid off. And because we are forgiven people, we're now motivated to forgive. What kind of Christian life would it look like for you to say, I know Jesus loves me. I know he's paid the debt. Screw you. I'm never going to forgive you. It's not possible to be overwhelmed with forgiveness, but to not know what it looks like to forgive other people. I got to stop if I don't uh, keep moving. We, second type of mercy. Uh, we help other people with their material needs. It says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now again, you read this out of context, you would think, oh, I got to be merciful in order for God to be merciful to me. But it's just because we're reading it with our cultural lens to say, if I'm good, God will love me. If you threw that out, if you never got exposed to that cultural lens, you wouldn't read it that way. You'd read it in context to say, God is merciful to me. And because that, I can show mercy to other people. Um, when I was in college, I worked at a fabric store. And uh, I don't know, I, my body type is not made for lo load-bearing, you know? I'm not, a, I'm not a muscular person. And somehow I got this job in a warehouse where I had to like lug huge, big bolts of fabric, like 80-pound pieces of fabric, and, uh, over to the like uh, savvy, trendy design ladies who ran the shop. And that was mostly my job. Put it on your shoulder, carry, open up the box, put it on your shoulder, carry it over here. That was my job when I was in college. The, uh, oh, why the heck was I telling you that? Oh, oh, yeah, bearing the load. Okay, so once in a while, I would get a hold of something that was so heavy that I just couldn't carry it. And you know when you start dropping merchandise, that's a quick way to lose your job. So once in a while, I would have to ask somebody to come carry the load for me. And so you know this, that when something is heavy, you have to come alongside it. You can't just say, oh, I'm here for you. I support you emotionally. You have to carry the load. And so if I've got 100% and I can't handle it and I'm about to drop somebody these expensive stuff, you got to come take 40% off of me and then we can carry it together. That's part of what it means to be merciful in the kingdom of God. That we carry the load, that you take on a burden that would otherwise crush someone. So I'm reminded of the, um, the parable that Jesus tells about the, uh, the good Samaritan. That there's a person who was traveling on a road and he was attacked and he was robbed and he's near death and a good Samaritan rescues him from the path. In the ancient world when it was dangerous to travel and everyone who read that parable would have went, yeah, I know somebody who almost got killed on that path too. And then the good Samaritan picked him up, paid for his medical care, paid for his stay in an inn so that he could get healthy. That's carrying the load. That's what it looks like to be merciful to other people. Jesus carried the load for us. On a spiritual, kind of like cosmic level, God also provides for us in carrying the load for a number of circumstances in our life. And because of that, we can look to other people and it's not foreign for us to say, I'm going to help carry your load. As a bit of application before we move on, um, I think the number one reason why we're not merciful is we're just kind of absorbed in our own junk. Like you just spend the majority of your week worrying about your stuff and there's just no room in your life for anyone else. Like, nobody intends to live their Christian life like, 
I don't care about anyone else. They can figure it out for themselves. Nobody, even if we think that, we don't say it out loud. But there's an aspect of just, I'm so absorbed in my own worries and my own concerns. I don't have room for you in my life. And yet a Christian who is a Jesus-believing, gospel-moved, lives-in-the-kingdom person has as a part of their mindset that God has carried the load for me. And so it's not, it's not odd. It's not out of place for me to say, yeah, I can, I can help you carry this for a stretch. That's what it looks like for the poor, for the hurting, for your neighbors, for your friends. We're merciful. And we're pure and we're peacemakers. I'm going to close with this. There are kingdom legends all over movies and books. And it might have to do with some of the European background that American history has that all of a sudden, sometimes you'll watch a movie that's supposed to be set in ancient Persia, but then they have British accents or whatever. Like some t- for some extent, we're just obsessed about like kingdoms and, and cultures that had kings. But have you noticed the fact that like in the modern world, uh, that, that's not a thing that's growing. It's not like there's more and more countries that have a king and a queen. And so we live in these modern, postmodern times, and yet all the movies, all the books still obsess about this same plot over and over again. There was a good king. While the good king was here, the people were at peace. They were meek, they were mild, they were joyful, they were blessed. The king is gone, but he will be back one day and we'll be happy again. Like the story of King Arthur. On King Arthur's tomb, it is supposed to have said, Rex quandum, Rex futurus, which says that he is the once and future king. He's the once and future king. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here in the Beatitudes. There will be a comfort, there will be a help, there will be a love that will so overwhelm you that it will make all of the struggles and the sins and the, the, the difficult things that you did to help other people in mercy, all of the pain of your life will seem like a distant memory when you are so overwhelmed with the joy of knowing Jesus for all of eternity. That's the future hope that we have in Christ. Such that the struggles today are even minimized because of the future hope that we have in Christ. Jesus is the once and future king. And the reason I bring it up is to say his kingdom is future and it's now. And if you're ever prone to struggling or doubting with like, is God really at work in my life? Is he really changing me? Or am I really going to see him move in a powerful way? Might it be the case that you are neglecting that he is the future king and that your future is secure in him? Or maybe you're neglecting the fact that he is at work right now because he is the once and, and incoming kingdom that is changes, changes us today. To the extent that we trust in the future that he promises and to the extent that we see him as king and Lord and hero and savior today, we live different lives of mercy and peace and justice. We have a peace in us and a surpassing joy because you can say, my king is here. I'm loved and accepted in him and my future is secure and my riches are intact and I don't need to worry and I don't need to scheme and, and, and sin my way to having financial security. I don't need to manipulate the relationships around me to feel like I'm accepted. I don't need to gossip my way into being in the inner circle. I am loved. I'm saved. I'm a Christian in him because he's the king today and he is the future king to come. If we live with that kingdom, 
then it changes us. And we are blessed. Blessed, 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 blessed. That's your life as a Christian. Nine blessings. The word blessed in the Old Testament is most frequently pointed to heroes in the Christian faith. And in the crowds of people hearing Jesus, all of them expected Jesus to be a hero king, in, or at least pose as a hero king. So the main question in the crowd is, what kind of king is he going to be? And then we see he doesn't meet your expectations. He's a different kind of king and a different kind of hero. In the Old Testament, David was a king. He was a hero. In the Old Testament, Moses was a king and a hero. They did heroic things. They mustered up courage. And then Jesus starts speaking. And then people go, what kind of kingdom is this? Here's the kind of kingdom that we have in Christ. Jesus is not just speaking about you in the Beatitudes. He's speaking of himself. He's not just listing out things for you to do that are moral. He's speaking of himself. He's announcing to you the kind of king that he is. In, the, in, this, in this sense, we become rich in spirit because he was poor in spirit in his life. We become comforted because he died on the cross spiritually in the dark and alone. We inherit the earth because he was meek and was stripped of everything. We get the earth because he lost everything. We are filled We are no longer hungry, no longer thirsty, because on the cross, he said those very words, I thirst. And we get to see and know God because he was pure, because of his moral record, because of his achievement and what he did for us. Now we live as changed, joyful, blessed Christians. My prayer when I say, to the extent, is that we live more and more of our life saying, how can I get more of this truth? into my life. And I don't do a lot of application for us as a congregation. My hope is the courtyard discussion does it, your small group discussion does it, your lunch after does it. So here's my question for you. What can you do in your life to get more of this reality into your life? Does it mean I need to stop reading the Bible as a list of rules, but start seeing that it's more about what God has done for me and then how it changes my identity? Or is it I have filled my life with so much entertainment that I've blocked out any thoughts of anything besides Instagram? I don't have room in my brain for any new information. I've got to do some like cutting and make some room. Or is it to say I have an I have an unrepentant lack of forgiveness. I got to do some business with these people I cannot forgive because I know that what's rooted in it is my lack of understanding that I am forgiven and in Jesus Christ. That's for you to apply. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit empowers you and gives you joy and blessing as you maybe read this passage even this week to say, God, what do I need to do in response to that? Let's pray.